Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Clebo and with me today, co-host Mark Miller. I did it! Sean! Hey. What did you do, Mark? Uh, I just got here on time before the show started. <laughs> Sat down, got my microphone ready. Oh, nothing that's going to get you in trouble. Nothing's going to get me in trouble. Nothing that you know about, at least. That I'm, <laughs> this is not an admission of guilt, okay? Oh, okay. okay. Let me got just start it. with that. Yeah. All right. Other co-host today, we got Adam. F-U-R-M-A-N-E-K. <laughs> that's a that's a very nice interpretation of our last name hopefully one day we'll get it right however i'm in a little different spot because i can see something just got into my apartment and is flying around hopefully it does not go into the camera and it's not that big <laughs> anyway I'll it's try not to... something dangerous no it's not no. mark flying around yeah no, okay no, no hopefully not <laughs> all right Okay, uh, let's bring in our guest. Uh, he's been on the show before a couple times. So welcome back, Jimmy Bogard. Nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you all again. Yeah, yeah. I think the last time we we met, uh, besides the show, is a project that we worked on together uh, about three years ago, if you remember that one. Oh, gosh, that's been a while. That's, that's so hazy with the whole COVID stuff. <laughs> like, it was one that started like two months before COVID. And then oh, gosh, yeah. it was out of Utah. So I won't say the actual company, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got so much going on, Jimmy. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. So what is going on nowadays? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I guess today's episode is really going to be like the last, it's been like the last 12 months of my life of this project I've been on. Uh, there's been like a big, like, legacy modernization migration effort um and we we shipped the first bits back in like march or so shipped some more bits like just last month and now we're working on the next set of bits to push out in february okay but that's pretty yeah. pretty much it like just <laughs> blinders on and getting that stuff out the door okay uh what's that project doing what do you what do you uh oh yeah so the working on here um, so it's kind of funny, uh, the, the company I used to work for, uh, that got sold to Accenture. This was one of the, the projects that I was initially on back in like 2010. So a while ago that we were building, uh, some web apps for them and they just kind of like been clients of that company for a long time. And then they reached back out last year and said, Hey, we, um, we, we want to do a couple things. One is we want to migrate this application or this series of applications from, like ASP.NET 4.8, um, or, you know, like the last version of ASP.NET that was on the uh, .NET framework. We want to get that off .NET framework and onto, you know, .NET Core 6, 7, like whatever the latest one was. Uh, and then we're also moving that from on-prem up to Azure. So it's like a two, two big migrations that almost had nothing to do with each other except for a couple little things. Um, so yeah, it was uh, just a, a big big migration effort for both the framework runtime as well as like where the app even lived and was being deployed. Okay. I have to admit, I was a little bit selfish when I reached out to you because I knew you were working on this. And <laughs> sure. I have a big, a big .NET Web Forms application that I have for one of my projects. It's yeah. been there for over 10 years. And it's like, I need to get it migrated. How am I going to do that? It's like, Jimmy, uh, yeah. wait, Sean, Sean, we can schedule <laughs> guests to help us with our work. Oh, Can we God. do that? <laughs> I didn't tell him that ahead of time, so you just learned. <laughs> just let's suppose you had, you know, just hypothetically, a big web forms application. How might you? <laughs> uh, yeah, so there was like there was a whole big initial discovery effort of just like, well, you know, they want to do this like just this overall big goal. We want to get off the the .NET framework and onto .NET, you know, core or whatever you want to call it, .NET six, .NET seven, the latest one at the time. Um, so there's a, there's like initial th part of just like, well, it, how, how feasible is that? Is that like a rewrite? Is there a migration path for us? Or does it really depend on exactly what sort of stuff is going on behind the scenes? Because ASP.NET as a framework you can build on is pretty big. I mean, it was, it was, it's been around for over 20 years. So there's just a bunch of stuff you can do in that framework. So I was like, just sort of the first thing was just okay, it's been forever since I've even seen this code. Like, what, what's actually going on here? And, and then what would be some of those migration paths for us? So luckily, 
for them, like that, that migration path wasn't too terrible because it was ASP.NET 4, you know, 4.8, whatever, but it was using MVC 5 and Web API, whatever the latest version of that was. So it the code itself actually looked very, very similar to like modern ASP.NET Core uh, sort of code, just like some of the names of things have changed. You mentioned web forms. So what that was one of the things we had to look at. There are things that there is no easy direct migration path because those things aren't supported in ASP.NET Core. And web forms is like the top of that list. I'm sorry to say. There's no, <laughs> that's a, like every page you have to rewrite one by one. There's no, I haven't found any tooling out there um, for that kind of stuff. But this application didn't have any of that stuff. They had like two ASPX pages and a couple ASHX things, which are, I forgot handlers. they even existed. They're handlers. Handlers, yeah. right? Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. I forgot, forgot those were a thing. It's been so long. So there's a couple of those kinds of things that don't have a easy migration path. But at least for the, like, MV, like if you're doing controller-based stuff, MVC or, you know, web API, web API controllers, it's actually quite a bit easier to do so. Sorry, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, um, it was either David Fowler or Jeff Fritz made me aware of this project called Core Forms. I don't know if mm. you've ever heard of that. Um, and it's something that that could possibly be used to, you know, modernize a web forms project so you can actually run it in a .NET Core environment. So I mean, that makes sense too because there's so much. ASP.NET code out there, web forms code out there. I mean, like, I've, I've got the gray hairs to show it that I, you know, that's where I cut my teeth was building, you know, starting with ASP.NET 1.0. That's, that was like my first really professional web job. I mean, I did a little bit of ASP Classic before then <laughs> with, you know, record sets and all that junk. But like, yeah, there's so, just so much of that sort of stuff. So it makes sense. It's, you know, like maybe Microsoft won't step into that, but then there's, there would be other companies that would want to step into that void and, and provide that sort of path for folks. I mean, I was even one project that migrated a 50-year-old mainframe from COBOL to, to web forms or you know, like some kind of <laughs> .NET something or other. It would transpile COBOL to .NET and like, it actually worked. Um, but like, there's a, there, there are going to be those, those uh, markets for those kinds of things. This yeah, stuff, that's about though, the same we, time. Yep. Yeah, it's about the same time I started professionally. Wow, 97, 98, things like that with classic ASP and things mm-hmm. like that. So, and then... Saw so, you know they were going to do it. ASP Plus was going to be the name originally, and then they went with you know ASP.NET. No, of course they're kicking themselves. Like, why do we still have this dumb ASP in the name? Active Server Pages? Oh, come on! <laughs> but it's branding, so so you know, I, I, I take it you didn't decide to do a rebuild. No, um, and and that was one of the things we got kind of lucky that the client approached this. Um, at the same time, Microsoft was releasing some tooling to make this sort of stuff easier. I, I, I can't share any conference, you know, NDA discussions, but you know, they, they have this problem where like they, they have tons of clients on .NET 4, 4.x. Um, and what, what do we do with those clients? You know, we do support the .NET framework going like indefinitely going forward. Uh, well, that's actually what they're doing now, right? .NET 4.8 has no support end date, but the idea that there are new features getting added or, I mean, especially what this team was running into is that they would encounter bugs in libraries and find that that library has been updated in like, you know, seven years because it's just targeting that framework. And those those authors or companies just didn't want to keep keep those things going forward. So for them, it was, it was basically a kind of a risk mitigation thing of, okay, sure, the .NET framework is fine, but all these other things that our code is depending on are slowly getting abandoned. And we want to make sure that this code base can live for 10 more years or 15 more years. So can we do this migration path to .NET? Oh my gosh, I'm going to say .NET 7 because that's the name, but I mean, everyone else thinks of it as .NET Core. <laughs> so I'll just say .NET Core as the like the other .NET, the new .NET, to, to migrate into there so that they continue to, you know, they're still building out features on this thing. So they want to get off. They didn't call it .NET there. NT. <laughs> oh, .NET Vista. I mean, just yeah. <laughs> me. I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that first of a- sort of sort of stuff, stuff we did was just look at okay, what the heck is this app doing? What is it depending on? What um, I mean, what are what are the migration paths for each of those components? So, like I said, we we looked at well, it's a .NET, you know, ASP.NET four eight, but it's MVC, um, and so that's a very similar code base 
to ASP.NET Core, MVC, and Web API. So we didn't have to do a big rewrite of the features and the pages. Um, like we could kind of just like um, just migrate each of the pages individually, but not have to change drastically what they are doing underneath the covers in order to do so. If you're on web forms, though, there is, I mean, unless you're using this like a third-party tool, if you want to go straight vanilla ASP.NET Core, like web forms is not a thing there. So you'd have to like page by page, one by one, rewrite them and get them pushed over. But when you yeah, say... the thing that I'm missing the most on the new versions of .NET, I think, is the, the new language. So you can't use right. yeah. sort of things like that. Go ahead, Adam. But when you say rewrite page by page, you can't launch it until you rewrite everything, correct? Or is there a way that to host that side by side in some magic? Yeah, that's that was the other kind of big thing that Microsoft pushed out is tooling to help support this incremental migration from one app to the other. Um, and so it's kind of uh, there's a few things that came into play to kind of come together to enable this kind of thing. Um, and one of them was Microsoft uh, created this their own reverse proxy. It's called YARP, so for yet another reverse proxy. Um, and so this reverse proxy is written in .NET Core and can be hosted inside of an ASP.NET Core application. So your ASP.NET Core application can handle requests and it can also reverse proxy to do other things, which is a little bit different than something like Nginx, for example, which is a kind of a pure reverse proxy that it just does that job and, and that's it. Where with this now, um, and they call it this, it's part of the system web adapters um, set of tooling that they offer is you're, you, when you, when you uh, decide to, they call it upgrade. When you decide to upgrade a project, you can even do, <laughs> they even like Visual Studio plugins. You say, right click project, upgrade, and it'll walk you through this assistant that creates a new ASP.NET Core application alongside your existing ASP.NET application. And that new ASP.NET Core application is going to be the target or landing place of all your new controllers and, and pages and whatnot. And the way the reverse proxy works is the request first comes into this ASP.NET Core application. And if it cannot successfully handle that request, like it doesn't have a controller, or if it gets an exception or something, then it forwards that request over to your .NET Framework application. And it waits for the response and then it then feeds the response back out as a reverse proxy to the to the uh, to the original um, client. So it because it's it, that reverse proxy can handle like anything. Um, it is kind of magical. Like I do a demo of this, and when I do this, when I show it to clients and talks and stuff, it's just like you right click it, you say whatever. Visual Studio now launches two applications, but the reverse proxy now just does nothing because there's not no logic in there. But the, when it launches the browser, it's got a new port because it's a new application, but the app looks exactly the same. And it supports like everything we could throw at it. Like we threw you know, like SingleR at it, um, you know, with different kinds of uh, different kinds of uh, SingleR clients to be able to do um, web sockets and all sorts of create. Like it handled all that stuff. It was just, it really was kind of magical. Like, oh my God, this is so much easier than it used to be. When I did this a couple of years before this, we were migrating to ASP.NET Core 3.1, and this tool didn't exist. So we actually had to include Nginx, where every you know month we would say, okay, what are the new routes we've got? And use Nginx to add entries to manually forward those routes over to the other application. But now, because it's self-hosted, like anytime a new controller shows up, that thing handles, or any kind of thing that handles route, that ASP.NET Core application now handles those requests. That sounds really cool. and. How does it look like when it comes to hosting that in Azure? Is it any different from hosting a regular app service or do you need to do some tricky stuff? It is different because it is two applications. Like you, you have an ASP.NET Core application and now you also have your, your existing ASP.NET application. So this client, for example, you know, even though we're migrating to them to Azure, we wanted to get sort of the first... Um, the first deployments to be as soon as possible. Like we need to get this in production and start seeing if this is working and and, run, and you know see if there's any problems. So initially, we actually went into their on-prem IIS instance and hosted an IIS, the .NET 7 application, alongside their existing ASP.NET application in, oh gosh, IIS, what it calls them? Oh, applications, yeah, IIS applications. Uh, so we'd have to do some changes there to like, you know, we had to create the whole, you know, build package deploy pipelines to this new thing 
But our very first deployment was literally this, this empty proxy application that handled all the requests and um, just forwarded everything over. It was on the same machine, but to the uh, to the to the ASP.NET framework, you know, ASP.NET that full framework application. Okay, so for on-prem, this is kind of doable. Obviously, mm-hmm. for Azure, a little bit trickier, right? Um, it is still, I mean, for Azure, the only thing we really needed to do was um, we didn't want, for, I mean, for on-prem as well, the ASP.NET full framework application, we wanted to make sure it could not handle external requests. Uh, but luckily, I was working with an awesome Azure networking person who like knew all that junk and can be like, oh, no, this this can only accept requests from this thing over here. And I don't know any of the technical things behind it, <laughs> but I know I got that to work. I'll make sure there's like, VNets or yeah. private link. I, I don't know. Lots of things that I, I just like someone else can figure that stuff out. But yeah, um, the, it wasn't uh, not straightforward, but it was definitely like definitely possible just had to have like a network person understand what they were doing to make that work. Cool. Was there any tricks that you had to do for authentication? You know, so because you're trying to authenticate into both. Oh man, you're giving me flashbacks time. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a good way. Oh, yeah. So authentication was a big... Um, I mean, authentic authentication and security and identity is like always a huge concern of any application. It's never just like a drop-in. Like, oh, I just enable this, check this box and everything works. So yeah, it was. Um, one of the things we tried to do early was like, well, let's get authentication migrated over first. But the the problem is you still run... It's, 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 two, it's two applications, two separate web applications. So if I have two web applications and I want to enable authentication between both of those, like suddenly you've introduced like a single sign-on sort of situation because I've got two separate deployed web apps. Now on-prem, it was easier because we we were using, in this case, we're using forms authentication with the ASP.NET whatever. And so like things like data protection certificates were already installed on that box that the apps were deployed to. So we could, in the ASP.NET Core application, say, Okay, you're also doing forms authentication, and your data pre- protection certificate is is also right here. It's just also in the same box. But we also had all sorts of problems of like, well, cookies. We needed to make sure that those all still worked. So what we wind up doing was deferring authentication until the very, very end, and then Microsoft um, exposes a series of adapters so that the authentication mechanism inside your ASP.NET Core application can still work in a transparent man- manner. So you're not authenticating on that. Um, you're not logging in to that web app. But what it will do is, um, <laughs> it's kind of wild. The you, you enable an extension on the ASP.NET Framework application that exposes APIs that when the ASP.NET Core application needs identity and login information, or like really like your cookie details, it will make an API call to the ASP.NET Core application. And then there's an API key to make sure that only that originating you know, server can, can call those APIs. It returns back your identity claims and you know, just as JSON, and then fills your, your claims identity or claims principle with those claims. And your ASP.NET Core application is just like, well, I got this, I got this, these claims that you said you're logged in, everything's good to go. So our, our controllers and actions still just had, you know, just, you know you know, enable authentication or use authentication and make sure that I authorize these different ones. But behind the scenes, it would call an API to get that information out. We didn't have to do that. We could have done the shared cookie thing, but we knew we were going to have headaches with that approach. So we just said, forget it. We're going to just wait until the very end of the project. And that'll be the last controller we migrate over from the ASP.NET 4.5 application or 4.8 over to the core. At that point, we you know, all the authentication logic would be moved over as well. And, you know, still using cookie auth, whatever. Um, so even the same data protection certificate, we just didn't want to try to go the route of like actual shared authentication, like logging in with either app sort of thing. That was just going to be too bonkers to try to figure out. But there's tons of options there, but it's highly dependent on what you're doing with authentication. And this application, you're talking about how many hosts was it utilizing? Um, so the existing on-prem app, which was the same as Azure, I guess, was um, it was two web apps, each of which were load balanced between two web servers. 
So they weren't enormous web apps like it was for it was, this. These were web apps for nonprofit um, scholarship uh, scholarship application and like ongoing sort of help for the student sort of thing. So it was a pretty constrained like set of folks, a number of people that were using this. But part of the deal is we like feature development can stop. You know, they're always like product owners wanting to add features into it. So we need to make sure that whatever approach we took was wasn't putting these big like giant code freeze roadblocks that would be like, okay, uh, you know, we just want to like make sure that if we're scheduling work, that it's not the same week that we're trying to schedule moving the specific controller over to the new app. That okay, well, we'll do a little bit, but it's no three month code freeze. Flip the switch. Hope everything works. We did weekly releases as we went of code moving over from .NET Framework to .NET Core, .NET 7. Sounds good. What about caching in this scenario? Oh, I so I put caching in the same bucket as shared state between servers because caching was also like kind of like we, we need to share. Well, I guess not exactly because their, their current app of caching they had in ASP.NET Core uh was using SQL caching. So it was a shared state between all that. So there's some things we we could have, like the ASP.NET and the ASP.NET Core applications could share state, but that was really just the business data. So the business data used a shared library that was um, both Entity Framework 6 and in Hibernate, if y'all remember that. Because um, <laughs> again, this is 2010, so that was like state-of-the-art back then. Uh, so it was using Entity Framework uh, 6 and in Hibernate. So the business data could easily be shared by both applications because both of those libraries can be multi-targeted for .NET Core and .NET you know, 4.x. So that was fine. The other data could not necessarily be shared. So uh, output cache couldn't be shared. Session state could not be shared. Um, the Let's see what else. Signal R. Uh, could could also not be shared. Uh, it turns out. Um, oh gosh, what else? The I said. Oh, Hangfire was another one that we had a really tough time with uh, trying to get to be shared there. So like output caching, we said, well, that's a page by page basis. We don't have to like share output cache between like because those are page based. But then we had SQL level caching. So that's when we looked at okay, what what kind of um, libraries we're using for the data access and do those data access libraries have uh do can they run at both of those runtimes and it turns out they could so the data caching was able to be shared across dotnet core and dotnet framework things that couldn't though like um the signal r stuff um we had we had shims put in place so that if you want to raise a single r event it would actually call an api over in the uh and the .NET Framework applications, like you know, push a message out, um, just because the the versions versions don't line up. And sometimes we just deferred features too to say, you know, maybe we'll wait on the controllers that use SignalR till the end, so we can migrate them all at once to be like, okay, now we're all on the new SignalR. So there's a lot of like feature flagging sort of stuff going on to like determine, you know, what what is the right behavior for depending on which purpose. SignalR is also tricky because we're also moving to Azure, and we were using a SQL backplane for SignalR so that you know both apps, because it's you know it's in a web farm sort of scenario that it, there's only one message getting pushed out. Uh, but in Azure, Azure does not support SignalR does not support Azure SQL in Azure. Because they want you to go to Azure SignalR, you know, like their actual hosted service. So they're like, there's literally I found the stupid if statement that says, query these SQL server server properties. And if it returns back with Azure, then throw an exception, we don't support you. So like that's I thought that was just kind of rude. It's like it's not like it doesn't support it, you just don't want to support it. <laughs> so like that's that's great. Uh, so you just little things like that we would run into of the things that being exactly supported on both sides. But Hangfire was another big problem for us because um so Hangfire is a uh is a distributed task and scheduling engine that can be run inside of your ASP.NET application and ASP.NET Core. So it can spin up, spin up background tasks. It also has cool things like there's management UIs that you can log in and see like, oh, this, these jobs failed, go restart them. And supports um, persistent storage for both the metadata and the queues themselves. We had an issue though, they're like, Hangfire is very easy that you can just 
basically point it at a method in your class and say, run this in the background sometime. And it will do all the magic to like capture the right data to be able to wake up and run that, that one method sometime in the future. It's, it's kind of magical. But we have the problem that if the ASP.NET Core application or yeah, ASP.NET Core application is also listening to the same jobs as the ASP.NET application, they can then like both run the jobs at the same time. Or maybe the code doesn't exist. Like the, we didn't extract out the job code in a place the ASP.NET Core application could look at. So we wound up creating two queues for both applications. So our application logic had to know where does this application logic live? Does it live in the .NET Core side or does it live in the .NET Framework side and route that message to the right queue depending on the framework? And there was that sinking feeling when we got the exception the first time of like, unable to locate method. And we're like, oh no, it's because it's on the other app and we're over here. Oops, now we got to figure this out. <laughs> so you cover really interesting scenarios. One thing I'd like to ask is when you were doing these deployments, did you have any outage? Did you take the application down for the time of the deployment or did you keep it like up and running? Oh, that's a great question. So the for the .NET 6 migration or 7 migration, no. We did not do... Um, we did not do application downtime. Um, there, were, there were very few cases in which we needed to like stop people from using the app to be able to switch over something. A big one was that hang fire stuff. Like we had to like stop the web app and make sure the queues got drained. And then, okay, now let's go ahead and perform the thing. But the team themselves, they were kind of used to doing this anyway. They would go to, um, like if they're doing a big data migration, like adding a new column to a table that they need to like seed with data, they would take the app down, show an offline page and be like, you know, under maintenance, run their stuff, and then bring it back up again. So for those kinds of things, we'd, we'd schedule out. But otherwise, no, We anytime we had new controllers and actions coming over, we just go and push them out. But you guys haven't talked about yet the actual like, controller action migration. <laughs> That's, that is something we actually had to do as part of this. <laughs> okay, so just to wrap on this up, so you're just actually saying that you can kind of migrate the code from old .NET framework to .NET Core with no downtime. Yeah, exactly. As long as your deployment um, process has that facility. So like, if you're using something like Octopus Deploy or like deployment slots in Azure that support those zero-time downtime deployments, we did exactly that, that we were doing continuous deployments as we were finishing controllers every, you know, once or twice a week, whatever it was, deploy out the new endpoints. And really the, the users didn't even know that because the cookies didn't expire. The the new endpoints just went to the new app the new um, the new app, but they didn't like they didn't see anything different. It didn't look any different, feel any different. It was just you know a seamless experience for them. So we we're able to like very low risk move one controller at a time, all of its stuff over, get it tested and pushed out, uh, and not have any of kind of these like big bang you know flip the switch, cross your fingers, hope it works sort of thing. So if somebody's looking at doing this, they could essentially just start with an empty .NET Core project, put YARP in it, and then basically just pass through everything to start with. Yeah, that's what it is. They just have to point their URL to that YARP, basically, so that then everything's passing through. And then piece by piece, they say, okay, YARP or .NET Core app, don't pass that to YARP, do it yourself. Yep, that's exactly. So it's basically the last, it's just middleware, and it's the last one in the list. So if nothing else handles the request, it's like, well, I couldn't do it. Let's go ahead and forward the request over. Um, so even we, we have these, these issues of like um, this question to our team of, okay, as we're writing a, a controller and action over, you know, we're, we're actually just copying and pasting the code. That's all we're doing, or cut and paste. Um, and basically just correcting namespaces. Those are only big things that really change from, from side to side. But uh, if there was a problem, we did find that if you get an exception with the ASP.NET Core application, by default, it will just forward that request over to the .NET Framework application. So we would have pages that were actually broken. We didn't know it because we had not deleted the code <laughs> in the other side. So we wound up like renaming controllers of like, delete me. <laughs> so that like we would still blow up with a 404 or whatever, like, you know, just get the kind of error page, the normal error page uh, on the main one. So it seems like you could actually do this approach for migrating any type of project over to .NET Core. You know, if somebody had just a pure Angular website and they went and moved it to Blazor or something like that, they could 
you know, pass things through with Yarp and put pages up in Blazor and then just have a mixed match of that. Yeah, I've even seen people do that. Like in like your web forms example, if uh, what they'll do is um, they'll <clears throat> uh, configure their routing so that the ASPX are now like, you know, MVC style or even Blazor, but it has the same URL. And then they may do then redirects like, okay, let's get these people onto the right URLs. But, you know, as they migrate over, they'll still like, okay, we'll just like, I'll grab that route. Um, because like, uh, do we go correct all the links in the ASPX side all at once? Probably not. So we were using these, you know, um, this redirects to like say, okay, let's not touch all those pages that are still linking over. Let's just use some redirects to, um, to get them over to the right spot. Now, to me, this sounds like uh, just an awesome approach, you know. <laughs> Especially for, for my in my case that I had to bring you on for to get rid of web forms. That uh... it is like again this stuff released. We we started this project in October of last year. So got about twelve months ago, and this sort of these tooling was only in preview like just two or three months before that, like July. So it was just like pure great happenstance. Like oh my god, there's something that just seems tailor built for exactly what we need to do, which is this incremental migration with the sort of seamless ability to bring on new endpoints. It was so much more difficult before the point we were like, someone asked for this, like, you know, if you want to, it's fine. You just have to pay way more. Um, so we went up finding, uh, just from like a numbers perspective, it was uh, something like five or 600 total actions and a hundred and something controllers migrated in about two and a half months with a team of four. And if I was to look at that project, you know, like even just a year before, I would have tripled or quadrupled the length of time it would have taken because it have been very manual effort for each one yeah, versus easily, now. Yeah easily. yeah, easily. Yeah. So could you go with the hybrid approach with this? Having Yarp and the, the new application in Azure and then the old one on-prem? That is a great question. Um, we, I went for like just being the architect on this. I, I took a uh, kind of a, a trying to mitigate the most risk possible. So that's why we we didn't know what was good. We were doing an Azure migration at the same time. We didn't know what was going to win in terms of like what was going to finish first. So I planned for having the .NET 4.5 or 4.8 and ASP.NET Core application on-prem and in Azure. Uh, it just wound up happening that we finished the .NET 6 migration like two weeks before go live of the .NET or the Azure migration. But that was completely unplanned that we just happened to. The one thing we did want to worry about as well is latency from the proxy to the framework application. So on-prem, those are right next to each other. We, I think we measured like, I don't know, 10 milliseconds of extra latency, so not a big deal. But in Azure, was slightly more. If we start to make those further in part, the proxy and the framework application, that's when you're going to start to notice a degraded experience for the end user. And so that was like top of mind as well, is that we don't want to make this worse. We kept telling him, yeah, that, that core is faster. You won't know until like, Four months from now, like we don't want to make things worse, and then it gets better. We like let's let's try to make it marginally worse, just with a little bit of extra latency. So, based on how you did that, uh, can you share anything you did wrong? I mean, you mentioned problems with <laughs> Angfire and other stuff, but did you do something that you actually regret you did, and now you would do it completely differently just because you learned something more? Yeah, there were, so we we got a chance to kind of do this again in the next project. And so there are a number of things that we just found, okay, uh, we'll kind of skip past that discovery. You know, I just call them discoveries. I don't want to call them like mistakes in front of the client, you know, since I consult. <laughs> it's like, no, there's, you know, discoveries we had. Definitely. Um, I mean, the, don't the have big problems, one was... <laughs> we have challenges. <laughs> exactly. So like the authentication was a good, a big one, like, Initially, we made that the first one, and it was so difficult to do. We're like, just forget it, make that the last thing, and then maybe we could do it before. But you know, we're really we're the ones deciding the order in which we tackle the controllers as a team. So we can just make that one the last one, and just say, you know, we'll do authentication and login last. All the business logic behind that stuff is already cross cross platform um, because it's using custom authentication, like it wasn't using ASP.NET identity. Or you know, like the that whole identity stack that it had. had. Um, so we just said we'll just do that last. We'll just wait until the end. Uh, what else? Like Hangfire is another one. Like we just we we want we 
we initially took a tact of let's make all these jobs cross-platform as well so the jobs could execute anywhere. But in reality, like it was a lot easier just to add a attribute to the hangfire job to say it's this queue, not that queue. That was a lot easier. So we just kind of skipped these sort of um, steps of whatever. Um, I would have uh, one of the things we had a, a question about is like which ASP.NET core should we target? Should we target the LTS version or the STS, which is basically ASP.NET Core ver- six versus seven? Um, and so we, the, the client wanted to go LTS, but there were actually missing features in ASP.NET Core 7 that we had to find solutions for. And one example actually is output caching uh, that didn't exist in ASP.NET Core 6. So we had to find some like janky open source library that was like backporting ASP.NET Core 7 output caching to 6 and did that where I was like, I probably would have pushed a little bit more like, it's okay to go 7. The end dates for support are almost exactly the same for six versus seven. So, you know, it, it should be fine to get that, you know, slightly slight difference in support end dates to like not have to have this custom code that you don't want to support. Cool. Cool. So going on this direction a little bit, bit more, the approach you took and everything you learned, do you think that could be applied to kind of more or less any web forms application? Or did it just work in your case because of some characteristics of the app you were working on and wouldn't work well in some other context? So a good example is the web forms piece. Um, there's no analog to the actual pages themselves. So if you look at uh, the landing place for all the UI code, you want to, for, for us, it was very, very similar. It was MVC5 to um, ASP.NET Core. And those types and namespaces are almost exactly the same. A lot of the guts changed, so we didn't bother trying to migrate any of the middleware from ASP.NET, like any of it. We Those were all rewrites. But it was a lot of stuff that either was now out of the box or had very similar equivalents to. So if you look like your web config, there's probably a bunch of stuff in there that has an equivalent, but we're not trying to port that over. We would just choose the right way of doing those things over in ASP.NET Core. Um, but otherwise... Uh, we would. That's what that kind of the additional survey was was looking at what is the what is the code that exists and is there a migration path for all of that code? Web forms, for example, there's not, um, and even some of the NBC stuff is really not a good migration path. So we want to understand like were there things that we need to migrate first before we walk, came over? And one example is that we were using an a some upload file upload control that hadn't had a release in eight years. And it works great still. But for that one, like there that company went out of business. And so we're like, well, we can't use that control anymore. So we decided we'll go ahead and upgrade the control in ASP.NET first. So that when we move it over, it's actually the same component and library. And so it's just like seamlessly moved over. Um, but it is um, that's like the, that's the whole point of the initial discovery phase. It's just like Okay, do we have a story for the migration path for all this junk that's in there? Jimmy, uh, I'm interested to know, how do you know uh, when you're porting that that what you've ported is going to work as well as what you came from? Are you relying on, you know, for example, test cases? Are you relying on, you know, multiple people looking at the code, reviewing the code? What what's your certainty level as you as you push out each change, right? And and what are you basing that certainty on? So that was a that was a big question for us of just you know, how do we get confidence that the things we're moving over are working the way they used to before? Um, so there are a, f- a few ways we did this. One was like all the business logic was already covered by tests, like we. We had, I don't, I don't know the percentage, it's like 90% coverage or something like that. But everything we built was already covered in unit and integration tests. There was business logic you know, right behind the UI. For the UI itself, uh, we relied on a couple of things. One was, um, well, I guess all the code we, we wrote did go through a peer review process. So everything went through pull requests. So another team member had to look at it. And that was mainly to look at like, not everything we pulled over could just be copied and pasted and, and done as is. So we would always review like, we had to change something, how something worked, because the ASP.NET was slightly, ASP.NET Core was slightly different. It would go through a review process to see, does that make, that make sense? Um, then everything went through a QA process as we were writing it. 
um, to do just basic happy path testing to make sure like, you know, the, the, the code pass or the, um, then the happy path of the UI would work as expected. But before go live, and this was, um, and this is more of an Azure thing, so I guess it's not that. We did, we did go through a complete regression test of the entire application that took about two weeks before we said we're live, we're good to go live in Azure. But for all the, um, all the individual controllers and actions, those would go through our QA folks. So as we finished them, they would then go do the regression testing for each individual page one by one. Um, and so, it went to the, it's the same rigors that, as it was like any other feature that was being developed. So the team of four are not, that's not the QA team. That's not in oh, sorry. QA, is that right? Four devs, me, infrastructure folks for, because we're going to Azure. So there was a whole whole mess over there. And then QA, Scrum Master, Product Owner. So like four devs, plus like the, the other people that you need to like, uh, you can't just have devs because they'll, you know, inmates running asylum sort of thing. So it's my favorite. That's my favorite, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so like four devs um they were like just you know sort of dedicated to migration this .NET 7 migration so are there moments along this path where you realize that the that what you that the test cases or whatever you need for that sense of security is inadequate and that something's going to need to be filled in here does that happen along this path or are you, is your 90% coverage nailing it and everything else with regards to the UI? We actually know? did bring in, uh, the, we did bring, for the business logic, because that code was relatively easy to make cross-platform anyway, that there wasn't a whole lot we had to do that. It was really UI stuff we knew that these frameworks are completely different and we need to cover these cases. So we actually did bring in additional QA folks to be able to cover that um, and also just not to be a bottleneck because we know like we are my, we, we are ha- going to have to retest every single page in this application in a relatively short amount of time. And so we did bring additional QA folks over to, to be able to accomplish that. Um, dedicated to just like, okay, we're pumping out these pages, they have to bring them over. Um, but in terms of uh, things we ran into is like we, because we were basically retesting the entire application, we ran into many bugs that had been introduced, but not by us. It was just like, just been introduced over the years. This is a 15, you know, 13 year old application. And so we'd hit things like, oh, um, actually it wasn't a bad thing to do anyway. That's like, we're finding things that we'd have to go in and be like, okay, is this, this actually, does this already exist? And so we go to production and find, oh, nuts. Actually it's, it's in production as well. So this is, this is a regression. This is not a regression. This is an, this is an existing bug. And get a triage like we get did everything else. And are you are your devs writing this those test cases in some cases, or is it the QA team that's doing that? The QA team. Uh, okay. Our devs, uh, the devs uh, that we brought in were more experts in ASP.NET Core and ASP.NET, so they understood both of those frameworks. They were not an expert in the domain or the application. Got so it. plenty of times we hit, we're like, okay, no. I just migrated this. How do we even use this page? Because I don't know how to get here. You know, it's like part of a workflow. I'm like, how do we set up the data? And so he did have domain experts to like, and QA to like, okay, here's how you can just even test this page locally because you may not know how to get to this spot in the app. Yeah, so that's cool. Yeah, I'm just thinking about your delete me class. (laughs) You know, at some point you want to add, you've got to add a new test case for that, I would imagine, just for the, to support that porting process. Um, yeah, so there were cases where we left controllers over there, and we even had like a unit test that was like, here are all the controllers that should not be deleted yet, for whatever reason. And so anytime we had that, like we just had a test that would just be like, if there's a new controller that shows up that shouldn't be over there, then it'll be in this list here. So it's like an explicit opt-in that says, you know, this is the things that have to stay to the very, very end. Like the, that was one of them. There are a couple others of like, oh God, um, just random other little things we knew they had to wait till the the very very end for the migration process. So yeah, at the very oh. end, it was an application with no controllers and only like web config, and we're like, okay, I guess it's time to delete this app because it's not doing anything. So we actually, um, we were in Azure by that point, and so we monitored the um, App Insights traffic to see is this app getting any more traffic. And after a week of no traffic, we're like, well, then we got it, boys, kill it and deleted the app and it was gone. 
That was so, when we celebrated. <laughs> if you were to um, like present a short cookbook, how to tackle a migration like that? What would be the steps you would focus on, the order? I mean, Sean would probably be very interested in that. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's kind of a... There, there was like the the kind of discovery process, the planning process, the execution, and then like the sort of sort of tear down at the end, um, kind of post uh, post migration tear down. Um, so the migration themselves, like there wasn't a lot of input from me as the architect, is like basically just sort of churn out these different ones. We definitely hit things though. We're like, okay, this is a very specific way of accomplishing this problem in ASP.NET Classic. How do we accomplish this problem over here? And do we want to provide shims to allow both to work? Do we like modernize it to, to bring it over? Or do we uh, kind of keep it as is um, and just you know, sort, of, sort of provide that shim? So it was basically this kind of four main steps. It's kind of discovery plan, it's kind of execution, and then tear down at the end. Um, for the like, discovery and planning process, a lot of that was just um, understanding the lay of the land, getting the survey of what what's going on in this application, what features does it have, and what 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 dependencies does it have, what libraries and components is it using, understanding the migration path for each of those, and then from the planning perspective, we we're looking at, you know, how should we go about tackling this? What is a good order for us to migrate these sort of things? So I would go through and look at like, well, what are the what are groups of related features? So if developers are working in an area that they can tackle you know, all of these things together because it's, you know, very similar kind of stuff. Um, what are the what are the controllers or things that have these dependencies that maybe tackle problems we want to defer on or want to tackle together? So we looked at, um, I made this giant spreadsheet of like, here are the, all the controllers. Here's how many dependencies they have. Here's how many using statements they have because that kind of tells us how much it's doing, how many actions it has. Um, then what features are being used in this controller? Is it using... Is it using similar? Is it using caching? Is it using, you know, all these, just list out the features it could be using to understand how how hard is it going to be to migrate any one of these things over? And that helped us kind of sequence it out or group things together or defer things to be like, okay, we need to spike singular. So let's not do any singular yet. Let's just defer those and someone spike it out. Well, I would be the one spiking out. Figure that out. And then, okay, now we've got a plan for any of those kind of controllers to move over. So we definitely started with like low-hanging fruit first as we figured out some of the harder problems and then say, okay, now we got a solution. Let's go ahead and pull those over and, and get them scheduled with everything else. That reminds me one of the big migrations I, I faced in completely other space though, which was uh, actually done twice. First, they wanted to capture all the use cases, plan them ahead and then failed because it was just way too big. So then they started doing stuff like incrementally, starting with small things and then moving on to bigger, bigger as they learn on the go. And we also had a wiki page for all this too. We'd read like, as we figured out how to migrate X, wiki page entry, okay. Because <laughs> we just keep running into these. Like now we have a solution for X. So go put in a wiki. And now the next controller we hit that, we, we have the solution already written down for us. Okay, so we'll make sure to put a, a note to all your articles on this uh to your website in the show notes, everybody can get there. Uh, we're getting towards the end of time, but uh, you know, I can't let you go before you kind of give us an update on all the other things that you work on. I don't think you ever sleep. You got <laughs> auto, you got you got this project. You got Auto Mapper, you've got Mediator, and you've got this thing called uh, Respawn. Oh yeah, yeah, that's another one. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't talked about Respawn before, but uh, yeah. Just give us quick updates on those projects. Oh, gosh. I mean, a lot of those now, um, the big ones for like AutoMap or Mediator is just understanding uh, how should I support .NET frameworks going forward? So big thing I'm looking at is like, do I abandon like .NET framework completely on some of these things? Because, uh, you know, you can't use various C-sharp features until you start getting on new frameworks. So there's this whole question of like, do I have a very wide umbrella of people I support, or do I just say, forget it? You know, if you want the old stuff, use the old stuff. So that's a lot of my libraries. I'm looking at like, what what should be my sort of uh, framework support plan going forward? Like if Microsoft doesn't support the framework, should I anymore? I don't know. So that's really, 
kind of where I'm not in a lot of my open source stuff is just understanding like, do I modernize all of these and abandon the old stuff um, versus um, try to have a really wide umbrella of people I can support? So far, because no one pays me to work on these things, I'm like, I'm okay abandoning old stuff because like, I only care about the people that actually pay me to work on this stuff, which is mainly like, you know, clients that need stuff done, whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. Maybe it'll be like, uh, you know, the military or some people that say, hey, we'll pay you to, uh, you know, keep those things up to date. You know, like military pays Microsoft to keep. I mean, yeah, you know, someone wants to pay me, that's a totally different story <laughs> than like no one paying me and be like, well, this yeah. is just hobbies. So, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Uh, let's uh, move on to picks unless there's any other last questions. Adam, what's your pick this week? So I will have two picks. One of them is a crazy sport called underwater hockey. So there is a very nice YouTube video. You can try to take a look and don't try that at home. Think twice before doing that. But generally the idea is you go down the pool, you uh, keep your breath for like seconds or minutes, and then you play hockey. Uh, underwater so really cool really nice uh and yeah i encourage you to take a look and try it out and the second uh because i always go try to go with technical picks the other pick i have is well a feature of windows that many of us never used or stopped using just because we have bitlocker and this feature is called encryption file system efs for short if you have a shared computer or if you want to protect yourself on even more on some hosting environment where you can't, for instance, enable BitLoka, then EFS may actually be a very interesting way of protecting some of your personal files from, for instance, some monitoring applications provided by the system administrator. Uh, just keep in mind, because internet pretty often tells you that if you Google up how do I change a user password from, from the command line? They just give you a tool that basically resets the password and breaks all your EFS files. So generally, make sure you know what you're doing, you back up your keys, and you stay safe this way. So that's the pick for today. So for underwater hockey, are they using a normal hockey puck, or is there something special there? They it's, use. I just yeah. looked at the video. I was just going to say... I was because I was freaking out when Adam talked about it at the beginning of the show. I was like, <laughs> no way. I was just I was going to get so mad. But then I saw the video and it, the puck looks normal, but the stick is held in is small and held in your hand. It's like a scoop kind of thing. And I'm like thinking, oh, OK, I can calm down. I can cancel my therapy appointment that Adam made me book. I can <laughs> get to a better place in life. Now, so it's like in a swimming pool. Yes, but but the the ice is the bottom of the pool. Yes, ah, it's going to be okay, Sean. You can cancel your appointment too. Ice is just the the floor of this pool is where all the lines that would normally be hockey. Yeah, the difference is you use very short stick, which is kind of like a knife long, so so really short. And because of that, you can get injuries really easy because you are really hitting on, you know, others, people, hands and, <laughs> and whatnot. So that's generally very contact sport. And you can't actually pass the pocky like very far because obviously water is around. So it stops you. But generally it is a team team play. So you can have strategy and other stuff. And apart from that, well, you need to keep your breath underwater. So so really good. People can play. I mean, kids starting like five years old until adults. And there is World, uh, World Cup that is played, I think, every other year or something like that. I think this year it was in Australia. Uh, so generally, it is a sport you really can do. And it's fun. I encourage you once again. <laughs> So uh, it seems like the goalie would need uh, like scuba gear if there is a goalie. Uh, yeah, I mean, they typically swim like on the surface of the pool and they just look down. But yes, sometimes they need to actually go down. But you don't have any like, you know, battle with oxygen, nothing like this. You'll use this, this regular pipe for snorkeling. 
um, uh, which you so so the typical game looks like this: you swim on the surface, you look down what's going on, and like if you are a forward player or something like this, and you realize, okay, now is the time I may go down to get the pocky and start, you know, trying to to score. So then you go down, you keep your breath, you stay underwater for something like minutes, two minutes, depending for how long you can keep your breath. And then when you realize that's a little bit long, you just swim up, (laughs) take a breath, and hopefully some other teammate is, you know, going to step in and and help score. Probably takes a decent-sized pool to do this in, too. They play the regular pool, typically, although... I mean, regular pool as an Olympic pool, right? But sometimes if the team is small, you can have even smaller pool, like half Olympic one and still play. Uh, I don't know whether there are rules of how many uh, how many players are there in each team. I guess they are, because like if you have World Cup, obviously you need to have some, some book with all the code. Uh, but generally it's pretty flexible. So, so my blow up pool probably wouldn't work. <laughs> All right. Now, when I bring my shiv hockey stick in there to your blow up pool, Sean. <laughs> All right, Mark, what's your pick? Um, I recently saw two movies that I both thought were excellent. Um, one of them is uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. Uh, really phenomenal animation in this thing. Uh, great script. Uh, Great performances. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Uh, the I guess one, I'm going to give you one spoiler, and I'm only spoiling the very end of the movie, so I don't think it's too bad of a spoiler here, and that is that it's a part one and part two. No one told me that until I got to the end of the movie, and I was like, what? What? There's a what? Where's my... That's what I felt when Dune, when Dune, the recent, more recent Dune came right, out. Right, It's like, that what? Yes. <laughs> what? No one told me. All right. I'd fine. explain I my kids what a cliffhanger is. Like, I'm sorry, kids. This one is known as a cliffhanger. And right. we're going to be hanging for a while. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> Second movie I saw was Flash, uh, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, you know, DC Universe. Uh, uh, I don't know the actor's name, but he, the main character plays himself in two different time periods or, or two different age versions of himself in the same scene and he does a great job. You you're, you're usually, you know, if the performance isn't great, I'm totally aware of it. And I'm like, and, and I'm, I was just entertained as heck by this, you know, 18 year old version of the guy talking to, you know, probably a, you know, 20 something, 30 year old version of himself. And, uh, and I was buying it. So I thought I it was there was issues with the special effects and things like that. They weren't the greatest. Well, you know what? I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't come in there looking like, you know, saying they had to have the best special effects. And I guess, you know what? I will say my younger son, there was one particular, you know, location that's visited several times uh, that's special effects heavy. And he was, he, he thought that was pretty cheesy. So he did call <laughs> that out. I didn't have a problem with it because I was just so impressed with the acting. I thought the yeah. actor did a great job, the directing uh, of this actor in, in these moments. Uh, I thought that was great, too. Yeah, I think what made Dune really bad about it is they gave you these little clips of th- scenes and whatever, and you didn't know that that was not going to be in this episode. Even if you knew there was another one, you didn't know that. That's a class be, action lawsuit. That I'm- bad <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, the next one though looks great. Have you seen the, the trailer yeah. for the next one? Yeah, I'm ready. But now I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it too, Sean. <laughs> now I'm prepared. Yeah, there's to, that there could be a part three, four, five. Yeah. All right, Jimmy, you have a pick for us? Uh yeah, let's see. So I was in the the Netherlands for the past like week or so for a conference. Um and they had this this snack uh food that I had like so much of because I loved it. It's called Bitterballen. And it's, it's like this beef stew that's been deep fried in this encrusted outside. And it's, I must ate like 50 of those things. I don't know how much, but it's like, it's like a Dutch hot pocket. So like the outside is crispy and the inside is like lava freaking hot. So you have to like dip it in cold mustard to like try to even it out. Um, so I didn't, I went to a few TikToks, but the, the thing I remember the most from the conference was all those, <laughs> all those deep fried balls <laughs> that I ate over the, the week. <laughs> 
it was called Bitter Bolland. Bitter Bolland. Yes. Bitter Bolland. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, my pick this week, another streaming uh, show. So, I like to watch a lot of these things. I've been watching The Wheel of Time. So, Amazon, you know, streaming show, Wheel of Time. It's, uh, it's, it's a fantasy world thing where only uh, certain people have access to magic. And most of them are like women and things like that. So, uh, they just finished uh, bringing out the last episode of season two. So I found it uh, very interesting. If you like fantasy, magic, and things like that, and you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it there. All right, Jimmy, thanks for coming on the show. If you, awesome. uh, if our question, if our listeners have questions, what's the best way to get in touch with you? I think you're pretty active on most social media. Yeah, um, I guess Twitter slash X, whatever it's called these days. My DMs are open there, so you can always ping me there. Um, or uh, even LinkedIn. If you're going to hit me up on LinkedIn. I am checking that more now that Twitter has gone down to <laughs> such a <laughs> such lows. Um, so that's probably the easiest way uh, to get in touch with me is one of those two social media platforms, yeah. Okay, great. And if our listeners want to get in touch with us on the show, they can reach out to me. I am on X and I'm on Threads. Uh, also, .NET Superhero is what you can reach me at there on both of those. So thanks, everybody. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. <laughs>